So on a scale of one to The Handmaid's Tale, how concerned are you about our country at this point? Are we going through the ebb and flow of social injustice? Or do you think this is bigger, more serious than that right now? Oh, this is more serious than mm. that. Yeah, this is definitely an inflection point. Um, are we talking about uh, Tennessee? Are we talking about Louisville? Are we talking about just the country in general? Yeah, that's the sad part of the question. I could be talking about a lot of things. Or right. I could be referring to a lot of things right, right so now. I just want to, before I start blabbing, I just want to make sure <laughs> I'm talking about the right thing. Well, before you start blabbing, let me thank our uh, partners over in California. Salestina is classical music's wingman by day. They're world-class performers and studio musicians who've played on your favorite films. By night, they're on a mission to broaden the definition of what classical music was, is, and can be. More at salestina.org, and I'll talk about one of their upcoming programs here in a bit. Because you and I are going to talk a little bit about the Tennessee Three in the um, in the closer, mm-hmm. in the final movement, maybe you can offer your thoughts on the many other things that have, to you, warranted the response of this being an inflection point and not just another thing that we're seeing in the news. After that shooting at uh, Covenant Christian School, was it, in Nashville? Mm, I think so. There were thousands of young people that flooded the area right outside the courthouse. Mm -hmm. I really think that the 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 reason that I think things are different now is because the young people who have grown up having shooter drills are now getting to the age where they can do something about it. Mm-hmm. Um, young people who are getting chewed up by the financial system as they try to get a degree so they can go out and compete to get a, a home that they can't afford. How can you put somebody through this through their formative years and then not expect them to do something about it when they get to that age? Yeah. Yeah. So that's why I think because you this this is a groundswell of interest in the political process among young people that I did not see in in my generation. So that's why I think we're at an inflection point. Again, we'll get more into this in the finale, but when you talk about political engagement, the challenge for me is that if there are people that can be expelled from uh, an elected office through process, through not not by that, some rogues, but but through an actual process, yeah. for me that creates a challenge for me to want to engage, to want to vote for anybody, you know. Uh, but I have to check my personal emotions and maybe see the bigger picture, or or maybe dig into to what I'm feeling. But to to get this opus started a little lighter, I wanted to shout out uh, Todd Harper, a local uh, composer, visual artist, a fellow Buddha. He chants. Uh, I p- performed a, a graphic score uh, concert over at Studio Z here in uh, St. Uh, in uh, over in St. Paul, downtown St. Paul. I've of course performed many orchestral stuff, lots of chamber music, solo recitals. But this was the very first time that I can say I was put on stage in an improvisatory capacity. It was mm. definitely different for me, but really incredible. Just to, I, Are you familiar with the uh, tradition of graphic scores? Do, like if, not, if I say that? No. So, what does so, that mean? So basically, music is mostly, you know, at least these days, written down uh, on Western notation. You right. know, you have staff paper and all that stuff. Well, many composers now are, and, and for a long time, but uh, I've, I've recently come onto the tradition of graphic scores where you have 
an image or maybe a, a, a curvatured line or something huh. that you interpret into music that people can't see it uh, right now. But I'm, I'm holding up the score to a piece of music called We All Need Copious Amounts of Water. So when I'm talking about a graphic score, this is the piece of music. So the way that this color blue meshes into this color green is something that I'm supposed to interpret musically. We don't have uh, clefts on some of these musical things, but they're images of or like bird beaks and that sort of thing. So mm. how do I create something out of that? Anyway, really a phenomenal show. I had such a great time and I can't wait to get more into the uh, tradition of improvisation improvisation. I feel like it's one of the final frontiers of, of classical musicians to actually play something that's not on the page. See, that really appeals to me because to me, the score as you see it on a symphony orchestra stand is way intimidating to me. Yeah. And when I was taking classical guitar lessons, learning how to read the music was the biggest stick, sticking point for mm -hmm. me. I had to go over just a regular tab to get through something. Yeah. So that appeals to me. However, I don't know if I have the command of my instrument to be able to just riff like that yet. As many professionals don't, but, right. but, but we're so I, but not here to talk about them. But, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> I think another uh, really innovative aspect of this performance was that not only am I looking at images and creating music, they're, um, they're not posted on the wall, they're projected on the wall. So the really? entire audience really? yeah. sees what I'm playing off of. And it just, and there was narration from Todd, you know, uh, to, to sort of contextualize some of the that's, improvisation. That's so, very appealing. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a very new experience, a very new music experience, but one that I just absolutely loved. And I, and I wish that there were more so-called classical musicians who would go into that world of improvisation yeah. and really creating music in the moment. How comfortable are you in an improvisatory space? We you can talk about you know acting, maybe musically, the improvisation of dialogue. Generally speaking, how do you feel about improv? That was my bag. In one of my specialties was um, thinking on my feet, um, trying to incorporate humor without cracking yourself. Sure, all of that I I did really well at. However, since the pandemic shutdowns and all that. That skill has greatly diminished. I've hmm. found the way the way that I communicate has really changed in a lot of ways. Uh, I don't know how I would be if you threw me in an improv setting. These, you know, and we're talking theater. We already said I don't have command of the guitar yet to be an improviser <laughs> there, to where it would be interesting for somebody to sit and listen. What do you have to have command over to be a physical, like an acting sort of? improv so does that so if we're not talking about command of an instrument we're talking about command of the body command of your mind command of your interaction with another person what are we talking about all of it and it comes down to listening because um you you have to be paying attention to all of the different ways that you might take something that somebody said you could you could have an improvisational i i was I, I've been in improvisational sketches that were completely serious front to back, no mm -hmm. comedy at all. Sure. Um, yeah, you. It, it's taking the environment. It's uh, incorporating history, current events, um, all different sorts of expression. You know, music, um, writing, all that. Or this, all everything comes down to what you're, how you're going to respond in this made-up scene. Yeah, yeah. So. 
leaving that performance and that experience had me thinking about some notable improvisations that at this point have been recorded that I just love listening to, hearing how other people engage improvisation. So I wanted to share a little bit of that before we uh, got going today. There is a, and I feel like I I took a look, I I couldn't find us talking about it on Triloquy. I'm surprised that I haven't uh, brought it in, but there's a bassoonist. His name is Paul Hansen. For decades, he's been known as like the jazz bassoon guy. So he Hmm. has, has done, you know, stuff that we would recognize as jazz improvisations on the klezmer side, so-called world music and everything in between. And years, ago, he and some uh, fellow musicians put out an album called Davka. And one of the tracks on that album I've been fascinated with since I was a freshman in college when I actually met uh, Paul Hansen. And in in, in this recording that I'm going to uh, share, the name of the track, I'm not sure how to say it. It's M-N-T-I. That, that's, and I'll have it in the uh, description for y'all to look at. But the way M-N-T? he... Yeah, something like that. But the way he <laughs> improvises on this track is just really incredible and I just I want y'all to hear a little bit of it. Bassoon. How would you how would you depart that or contextualize that for a more uh, so-called traditional classical music audience? We got the instruments. It's not electronic where we're really talking about classical music, even, you know, as the, the most uh, traditionally minded person would use that phrase. But how would you, uh, based on what we just listened to, bring an audience to that? Is Is there a first of all, is there a time of day that you think that music would be? Uh, best received over sort of a classical radio uh, medium saturday night nine o'clock okay so okay yeah that that's that's good people are feeling swifty maybe they've had a drink or two (laughs) (laughs) yeah because i can't but yeah um probably later in the evening on the weekend if it's a friday or saturday night let's act like it Mm -hmm. because even people who listen to classical music like to you know get classical freaky on the weekends sure, i guess sure. <laughs> but how would i introduce it how, you know, would or I re- how, how would you prepare a listener for what we just listened to or would you just mm. th- throw them in the pool naked so to speak <laughs> you know <laughs> or just throw them in the cold water there's shrinkage um <laughs> i would i would almost try to take it out of the classical lens because mm. Classical music has you you follow the score, right? There's no there is no room for you to you can put your own emotive things on it, right? Mm-hmm. Improvisation really doesn't come out of the classical school, does it? And see, and am, that's I, the am thing. I talking about something I don't know about? Well, and that's the thing. I feel like it's a part of the tradition that we've forgotten. I know how you feel all about beepy boopy music, <laughs> the, <laughs> yeah. the whole baroque thing, but. 
in Baroque days, every one of those, um, well, why am I blanking on my Cadenza? basic words? Cadenzas mm -hmm. were, impro were improvisations, you know, yeah. even within the uh, written music, certain ornaments and ways of playing things were improvised. So improv is definitely a part of, of even the Western European tradition. We've just sort of lost it in our, in our contemporary practice. However, some cadenzas are written down and then presented as the piece though, right? Sure, sure. Yeah. Okay, so um what what do you do there? I mean, do do you take the cadenza out and give and let the soloist freak it? <laughs> well, as far as my first teacher was concerned, shout out to Lacoli and he didn't care what cadenza was written down. He said, "You're writing one." You're you're doing your own. Okay. <laughs> and okay. I think the cadenzas that we have written down now in many cases are examples of what was uh, so impactful that it got written down and then people just started playing it. And right. that sort of thing. But anyway, the long way of answering your question, improvisation is a part of even the Western European tradition. We've just lost that part of the tradition. So is there a notation for the sounds of the bassoon that we were having? Like if somebody were going to transcribe that down, would there be a way to slur the way that he would, you know, put those notes together or uh, some of the, the, the more... Uh, stabbing sounds that the bassoon can make? How would you write that down? Yeah, there, there's notation for all of that. Little huh. squiggly lines between notes and, you know, accent huh. marks and all of those things. But at the end of the day, a lot of the stuff that Paul was doing there is stuff that only he can do or not sure. many other people can do, which for me is what makes it so notable. I guess, I guess that I would set it up as, you know, what you're about to hear is where this artist is in their life because every practice that he had mm -hmm. everything that he's heard everything that he's played up to that moment of that improvisation is being represented right so it's it's not necessarily um just garbage notes you know or like people make fun of abstract artists oh, yeah just people can, just playing right, notes while no it's not yeah. this is you know this is this is this marks where this artist is in their career in their life at right. this point yeah so we try to set it up as something more along the lines of a um um an expression of their of their skill and their and their background to this point how about that and their lived experience their their, their, their engagement right. of what they're hearing immediately in the space you know because right. he is playing in the same tonality as what's going on underneath him so sure. it, it's really brilliant I, anyway what about you is there a a notable improvisation or uh, or performance of an improvisatory approach that you think about as we're having this conversation Eddie Van Halen on their uh, on the first Van Halen release back in 1974, um, <laughs> there was a there's a, a about a 90 second track called Eruption, which is really just Eddie stringing together a bunch of different techniques. Is is the piece as loud as that title makes me think it might be? <laughs> uh -huh. It is, and so you can you know and. Uh, like I said, you can tell he's basically taken etudes, you know, like exercises, mm -hmm. strung them together in a way that makes sense. And it's become uh, the benchmark of, of rock and roll guitar.
and it keeps going. Okay, Eddie Van Halen, we get it. We get it. You now, can play the guitar. Here's the this <laughs> tapping technique here. I mean, he pioneered all that. What else are we hearing in that? I mean, because as someone who's not trained on guitar, I mean, there are pitch bends and yep. all, all, all sorts of stuff that, you can, that's in there. Sure, you can you can bend the strings up and down to get that, but the the really big swoops down here, yeah. what they have is a locking nut and there's a tremolo that allows them to take all of the tension off the strings. And when they bring it back up, it's still in tune. So, so to 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 answer, you know, sort of answer the question that you were asking me about Paul Hansen's improvisation, how can you write it down and and all of that sort of thing? I also believe that that Eddie Van Halen improvisation can be fully notated for someone else to play. Sure. Does that mean they can play it? No. No. <laughs> like it's written down. We know what it's supposed to sound like. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> but anyway, I, I, just the yeah. We're gonna go ahead and 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 jump into the intro and get going. But I just, oh, that's like, right. We haven't done I, that I, again. <laughs> again, this idea of improvisation, I think, is just so important when it comes to the development of a more well-rounded musician, even a more well-rounded so-called classical musician. Mm. What kind of rock guitarist are you if you can't do any sort of improvisation? You mm. know. What kind of jazz musician would you be considered if you just can't improvise? I think we need to put that same pressure on our uh, institutions, our conservatories and all all our schools of music to teach the next generation of students to do this. Because mm. there is a next generation of music that composers are putting forward um, that, you know, folks leaning into graphic scores. Again, shout out to uh, Todd Harper and all the folks who are doing that these days. It's an important skill. But even beyond that, I think about improvisation, the spirit of it as what it really takes to mm. move dialogue and, and move conversation. I've talked about it before. I'm going to read a short excerpt from this book called Reaching Beyond. It's dialogue um, among Herbie Hancock, Wayne Shorter, and uh, the Buddhist philosopher Daisaku Ikeda. Uh, Ikeda writes here in this book, it says, right now at each moment, we can demonstrate wisdom and power brimming with joy. At the same time, one needs intense training and practice to cultivate the ability to improvise successfully. Leading up to a dialogue, I carefully study about my partner or partners, both out of respect for them and as an expression of my sincere desire for meaningful exchange. After this preparation, the dialogue itself is a matter of playing it by ear. Mm. Once a dialogue or musical performance begins, each unfolding moment requires absolute concentration. Mm. So basically what I take from that is improvisation is so much, and no, and no matter what type of improvisation we're talking about, musical, acting, dialogue, whatever, it requires rapport and it requires a familiarity with the person that you're doing right, right. this sort of improvisation with. It does. I feel like when we talk about the issues of the world today and how we can dialogue our way, how we can improvise our way to better outcomes, there has to be an engagement of the person, of the human, really becoming familiar with the other side or the the other viewpoint. And that's what I'm really focusing on trying to do. I can I could be in my feelings and just uh, be all wired up and ruined by what happened down in Tennessee, or I can do my best to 
see and study and familiarize myself with the other side. And that's a whole nother conversation, you know, this whole tribalism, but just for mm. the sake of this, I'll say of the other side so that I can figure out what dialogue I need to have, what words I can say that may shift things in a mm. more positive direction. I, I, I just back. had just one quick question because I know that Wayne Shorter composed a piece called Terra, at least one piece, Terra Incognita, oh, yeah. where he put no dynamics, no any sort of hint as the way to play it. Mm -hmm. So there has to be some sort of an improvisatory feel even there, right? Yeah. Okay, so I just rebutted something. Uh, I just answered my own question from earlier about, <laughs> you know, how can you how can you be improvisatory within the confines of a classical music composition? And I guess that's one way is to just put down the notes and not, and let the uh, let the musicians decide how they're going to embellish them or or play them. That's one of the beautiful things about improvisation. Sometimes you find yourself or you answer your own questions. Yay. <laughs> anyway, let's jump in here. Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy with an extra long intro this week. So we're going to hurry up and jump that in. But happened. thanks to everyone who uh, listens in every single week. We couldn't do this without you. Thank you so much for your continued support. To new listeners, Triloquy is a podcast that takes the phrase and the idea of classical music and expands it to include so much more, all toward the ultimate goal of decolonizing classical music. To learn more about Triloquy, to take a listen to past opuses, and to contribute, visit our website, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y.org. Huge thanks to our friends over at Salestina, presenting on April 28th and 29th, say Salestina as we envelop you in a stunning musical playlist specifically designed to bring on a healing ugly cry. Drinks before, nibbles to follow. Sometimes mm. that ugly cry is needed, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it, it is. I, about Probably about twice, not often, maybe twice a year, I need me a real good ugly cry. Yeah. And then I can move on. Like snot bubbles and everything? All of that. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes even in the shower. You know, <laughs> That's <just> the best. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Salestina is bringing that to y'all on April 28th at 8 p.m. at the Eddie at the Broad Stage. And on April 29th at 8 p.m. at Barrett Hall at the Pasadena Conservatory. And that performance on the 29th will be live streamed. So to learn more and to get your tickets for that, go over to salestina.org. Juan Pablo Contreras comes back to Triloquy in the third movement today. Very excited to uh, hear from him and to share my conversation uh, that I had with y'all. In the second movement, we're celebrating Brandy Younger and Amber Run. Can't wait to get to that. Tennessee, God damn. We're going to do you. that in the final movement. But for right now, we're going to jump into movement one. All right. Uh, how about you get us started this week with the accidentals? What accidental you got? Sure. Let's give this one a sharp. This is from the New York Times.com. Before I read the headline, let me ask you this. When was the last time that you were at a rave or some sort of a, you know, a, a, a big dance with a DJ and the drop hit so hard that you just broke into tears and you just couldn't hack it? It's happened. Really? It's okay. happened. Oh, say more. Okay. No, I thought I was going to get a, a never. Okay. Well, I, mean, I, I think familiarity comes with it. So there are portions, let's say, of uh, 
Shahrazad that when something just happens, you know, like one one of the one of those loud moments finally gets there, it's awe inducing, you know, at least in my experience, to the point of tears. I also think about um, you know, what it would feel like for me to uh, go to uh, a live Beyonce concert, you know, because we, we, we already talked about how I'm not spending $1,500 on a ticket. You mm. know, we don't have to <laughs> recover that, but mm-hmm. there are just certain tracks that I know in that moment and in the in the space, if that beat dropped or that volume cut up or whatever at the, at the right time, it would definitely do that. Well, post you're not, in a, you're, not, you're in a big, not, not meaning to stomp on whatever point you're trying to make here, but no, that. it's fine. It's fine. But plus, you know, you also have that, you know, you're, you're in that environment with a bunch of people, you're all having that same experience. Mm-hmm. And so everything gets amped up. I get that. So from the New York times.com, uh, th- I thought this was interesting. Daft Punk's Thomas Bangalter. I hope I'm saying that right. Reveals himself as a composer. Hmm. After more than two decades at the forefront of electronic dance music, while in a robot-style helmet, the French artist is releasing Mythologies, a score for traditional symphony. And the reason why I asked you that question is because about uh, a quarter of the way down into this article, he's quoted as saying, with electronic music, it's so hard and it takes so much time to infuse emotion into the machines. That's interesting. The soft-spoken and thoughtful Bangalter said from his home in Paris. So to write a chord or a melody and have the performers, the human beings, play it and have this instant emotional quality to it is really quite exhilarating. It's not the fight that you have against the machines. Just to make sure we aren't leaving anyone behind, what would you say is Daft Punk's most recognizable tune. For someone who says, oh, I've never heard of Daft Punk, what tune might they have heard at some point? Well, over 20 years, they've got quite a few of them, but most recently would be Get Lucky. Like the legend of the phoenix All ends with beginnings What keeps the planet spinning Ah, the force from the beginning Just giving the people a taste over there, just so that they know who we're talking about. Not not to get us derailed too far. A few weeks ago, you were talking about how you could take the lyrics of a song and really just frame it through whatever you're going through mm-hmm. in your life. When I hear, uh, you know, those lyrics, we've come too far to deny who we are. Or, mm-hmm. Ooh, that anyway. Go ahead. <laughs> um, I'm glad that you're getting that response from it because. Uh, for me, I can sing along with that and not get emotional at all. Mm-hmm. That's because it's banging. Yeah. That's because it's, it's, a it's it going. Goes. <laughs> uh, Nile Rodgers on guitar and his uh, Farrell. What, what's his oh, name? Pharrell. Pharrell. Yeah. yeah. Uh, doing the vocals on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but we see this happen a lot where someone who works in pop or rock music that might happen to be classically trained, they have their career as a uh, a uh, a hotel room smashing uh, band, sure. and then once they hit about forty five, fifty years old, they start hitting. They start composing, yeah, and start doing this more introspective stuff with you know um, uh, a dozen or more instruments. You also see people moving from rock into jazz, and they'll go over into jazz, and they'll say, oh, "Here's all this freedom. We don't want to go back to where the chains are. We want to be out here where we can 
really express ourselves. I, so, I, I view that a, a slightly different way because for me, it seems like to be a composer, you have to cultivate the notoriety, you have to cultivate the money, you know, just the, the right. career status to be able to do it. I, I feel like that may be, you know, not to discredit I- I anything that you're saying, but I feel like I'm seeing a little bit of that. Maybe he always had uh, a desire to be a, a composer, but had to sort of put it on the shelf because this electronic music over here is actually what's going to pay my bills. That's right making now. the money. Yeah. And now he has the money to be able to write this. That's what I was going to ask you is how you feel about that. Yeah. Because uh, should a person have to slog for 20 years playing one genre in order to do where their heart really is or where their dream really goes? Yeah, of course they shouldn't have to, but that's just the unfortunate circumstance that we're in both in our capitalist sort of structure and the way that that intersects composition and mm -hmm. orchestras and all of that stuff, but also when it comes to the status quo of performing arts institutions. New music, living composers have to fight against the dead. As Tommy Doherty was saying right. last week, you know, it's the dead who they're arguing against and and fighting against by way of the institution. So I think it's a is that double-edged sword that keeps folks like Thomas from a from jumping into composition sooner that I, I could be pulling out of the air. His story could be different, but from the outsider perspective, you know, that's what it looks like to me. Do you think that his association with Daft Punk will draw Daft Punk listeners? See where I'm going. Mm -hmm. Will that draw Daft Punk listeners into his orchestral piece and then have them go, maybe I should check out Trent Reznor. Maybe I should see what, Tony, um, the gentleman who plays keyboard for Genesis, what, you know, Tony Banks, what his compositions sound like. Basically what I'm getting at, we, we've, we talk all the time about these other forms of music coming into the concert hall. And I'm trying to look at the way orchestral or those sorts of instruments are mm -hmm. being incorporated into the things that you find at the hip hop and rock shows. Yeah. And, and how far off are we from doing something like that? I think the track record to a degree is there. So uh, this piece of music that Thomas has written is for a, a ballet. Not too, too long ago, we were talking about Solange mm. writing music for a ballet, you know, composing a, a ballet score. And of course it was sold out. You know, it was wall to wall in there. Beyonce herself showed up. Yep. So I can only imagine, I don't, I don't know how, uh, how how stanny how how much people stand Daft Punk in the way that we stand Solange and and crew, but I would imagine that that would be enough to get somebody at least curious in there to support uh, Thomas and to maybe have their eyes opened or maybe have it affirmed that they don't like that style of music. But but either way, I feel like his notoriety in, in itself would bring a crowd. It's interesting here that this quote says it's a break of the medium but it's the same person. Mm. So if we were to use, for people who don't know, when you compose music in the computer, it's MIDI, which means you have triggers mm -hmm. and you just put different instruments or different skins over that. So if we took Get Lucky and broke it down MIDI-wise for like a string quartet, what would it sound like? Would you play it on a classical station? I would. I would play the original. You know, <laughs> I, I would play the straight up version with Pharrell. But you know that that's a that's a that's another conversation. But what's beautiful, you know, one of my favorite things to do, you know, and I've talked about this on Triloquy, 
getting to know a piece of music even better by realizing it yourself. You do the same thing. You look up the chords or the tablatures of a tune and and play play it, you know, mm-hmm. just to do it yourself. So, you know, that that's also a thing, but I think it's of note that we aren't talking about that. We aren't talking about a string quartet or even an orchestral arrangement of a Daft Punk tune. He is creating new music through that traditional orchestral medium sure. and just in his own way. So we we talked about, you know, uh Solange. I think one of the things uh, I also are. wanted to jump into is is the multidisciplinary approach what it's really going to take. So he didn't write uh Thomas didn't write a a 30 minute symphony. He wrote a ballet which, you know, 90 minutes. It it, it keeps the the audience's attention not only um aurally but visually. They're looking at the dance, they're they're looking at the set. Do you think that's significant? Do do you think it matters that this isn't just straight up orchestral sit-down music but music that require I, sh- I say requires more of the senses but uh but offers more of the senses to the performance you know i i, I don't know i think there's something to that i think that the newer audiences are going to expect more mm-hmm. um in the realm of makeup sets costumes lighting all of it B- because look at look at all of the different sorts of in- of of entertainment that younger listeners have grown up with at their fingertips mm-hmm. You know, they've they've seen some of these things through videos, whereas, you know, my generation, if you wanted to see ballet, you had to go to the ballet. Mm-hmm. And that is what I thought you were going with. Is is ballet an area that's more accepting for a pop or a rock artist to step over into that? You know, because it, it seems to me like ballet companies are the ones that bring in the new stuff more frequently. Am I wrong in yeah, that assumption? I mean, yeah, dance, I would say theater in general right. is, is more... Or, or I say less uh, affixed to Shakespeare and those and those folks. Uh, I think it's cool, and I think that uh, you know the the success of of this will speak for itself. Is it if it hadn't already? You know, the New York Times is talking about it. We're talking about it. So yeah. he's 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 making some moves. One thing I wanted to jump to before we left this accidental at the very end, Thomas is quoted as saying, "My priorities in the world in 2023 are on the side of humans, not the machines. I have absolutely no desire or intentions to be a robot in 2023. Mm. There's absolutely not one reason I would want to be one." That quote sounds more pointed. It sounds like it has more hot sauce in it beyond, oh, I'm moving out of electronic music. I want to do something different. Maybe uh, all of those years having the uh, the, the mask. mask on, you know, people, he, he, he felt like people weren't uh, taking in his humanity. They were just, you know, uh, thinking of him in conjunction with these electronic sounds. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And, and again, not to superimpose anything on this man, but it sounds like there's some sort of trauma there, or at least a really? reaction to a, a, hmm. a, a reality for him to just be so adamant about, I'm on the side of humans, hmm. not the machines. That's something that I would never say. I don't have that lived experience, but it, it feels unique to hmm. me. Hopefully this will bring some younger listeners over into, or at least being more accepting to uh, check out an all orchestral piece like that. And like uh, Zachary Wolf writes in this article, it's a 90 minute piece. Mm-hmm. So it's not any little trifle. Right. He just dashed off. Yeah. The, yeah. This is, this is some meat right. on, on these bones. Yep. Well, uh, shout out to Thomas Bangalter. Um, shout out to uh, Daft Punk and to the, uh, the, 
diversity of aesthetics and the music you've given to the world. To transition us to our next accidental, I wanted to listen to a little bit of the piece that uh, Thomas oh, Bangalter wrote. So it's called Mythologies. Mm. Um, I may, I'm sure the the video, you know, of ballet and, and that stuff will come out, but uh, the album uh, is out. And one of the movements, the fifth movement is called Les Amazones. So the the Amazon or the Amazonians. Mm. It has a nice aesthetic to it, a nice active feel. Um, and we're going to sample it to get this into our next accidental. You can tell he's been in dance. Uh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that that very steady beat. That, yep. and, and a lot of this piece, uh, the the whole 90 minute thing is very um, ephemeral, very, you know, how what, what words can I use? Very uh, curvy, very soft and pillowy. You know, that that's definitely a mm. part of it. But I think <laughs> this movement in particular is just a peak into his past and to his experiences as that electronic sort of music creator. Mm. If I, you know, had, I, I would not be able to say the name Thomas Bangalter, you know, certainly not before today. So if someone asked me to guess the composer, and I hate when people compare, but I would think John Adams, Philip Glass, right. some, some, something in that genre. So I, I just, I, I love to hear it. You know, mm. we love to see it and I love to hear it. So shout out to Thomas. And uh, hopefully this won't be the last bit of orchestral music that With we hope. get from uh, yeah. this really brilliant music creator. All right. Well, uh, we're going to round out the accidentals this week. I'm going to have to give this a flat <laughs> and maybe I don't have all of the perspective that I need, but this really sounds ridiculous to me. I'm reading from uh, Manchester Eve news.co.uk police reviewing evidence after women dragged out of the bodyguard musical at Manchester's Palace Theater. Every time we talk about England, we're talking about some mess. <laughs> <laughs> yes, go ahead. All right. I'm, I'm just going to read a little bit uh, from this. It says police are reviewing evidence after two women were removed from the Palace Theater in Manchester. A performance of the bodyguard musical had to be stopped early at the theater on Oxford Street on Friday evening after an audience uh, member repeatedly sang over the top of performers. <laughs> uh, the show's producers had asked the public not to sing during the performance with signs installed around the auditorium. First thing I'm going to say, something that me and my friends used to say all the time, if you happen to know the uh, the internet show Got To Be Real, you will get this reference. But we used to say all the time, listen, just because I'm singing over you doesn't mean I'm over singing. <laughs> oh, okay. And that's what that, that's what I feel like we got here. We're talking about the bodyguard musical. We're talking about the timeless classic nature of Whitney Houston. If you hear a Whitney Houston track, 
that you that moves you. You know, we, we were earlier talking about moving uh, concert experiences. You are going to sing along. You're at least going to want to sing along. Tap your foot, clap your hands, do something for you. Where does audience participation <laughs> overlap respective performers? You know, because it sounds like that's the conversation we're having. Let me tell you a story about the night that I was uh, a young man of. Um, 28, 29, got back from a business trip, went right to the bar, had too much to drink, and was really feeling the band that was there. Okay. And there was maybe half a dozen people in the place because, you know, it was a, a weeknight. So anyway, they're playing all this, all this, these songs that I love. And I'm singing along with them in total tribute. And I found out later that I was louder than the band <laughs> and that they really wanted to hurt me. Mm, oh, the ba- oh, they were mad. So um, I understand the desire to want to sing along with something that you love and identify with because you feel seen. And those people are paid to do it. <laughs> and you are not. Plus, there's a whole bunch of people sitting around you that may or may not be able to sing who went there to hear the person on stage do it. So I'm going to defer to the folks on stage. Sure, sure. A a little bit more from this. Is that Uh, wrong? uh, (laughs) Honestly, I don't know how I feel Mm. about it, but uh, I'll, I'll read here. It says... Speaking afterwards, one mo- one woman in the audience said at least three police vehicles turned up with officers stopping the show during the rendition of I Will Always Love You. Quote, there was a lot of heckling at Melody Thornton, the lead singer who was on the stage solo at this point. Her mic was cut and the curtain was brought down for the second time. A fight broke out in the upper stands as security tried to deal with members of the audience. It was about 10 minutes to the end after an earlier stoppage in the show as others were removed. So it sounds like just a lot of chaos happening and they use the word heckling. Mm -hmm. So what do you think this article is trying to get us to understand about the situation? Not that, well, I I won't even put words in your mouth. Do, Do you think it's more about, oh, these people were enjoying the show, singing along, participating, and they're being policed versus oh, these audience members bought tickets to be disruptive, to heckle these people, and they had to be removed. What, what's the story mm. that you think they're trying to get us to understand? Because that's what's cloudy to me. Yeah, that is that is cloudy. I can. They said that there was another stoppage beforehand. Right, so uh, apparently and, a lot of people wanted to sing along, and, and I, they had to stop the show. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe they should have tried out. Um, <laughs> but- I can also tell you as, and you might be able to back me up on this, when when you're doing a show and when I'm in a play and I'm in the mode and I'm and you know you've got you've got your groove going, mm-hmm. a stoppage like that is going to cause you to cool. Exactly, exactly. And then you run the risk of the second half of the show not being as as tight as the first, or as um, maybe you wouldn't even inspire people to sing after a stoppage like that. Mm, 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 mm. So, um, and we got to know what, what, what is heckling though? What, what do they mean by heckling? The only things we really have. So there are a couple of tweets that they cite in this article from uh-huh. people who were there. Excuse me. Um, so uh, it says here, Tosh tweeted, quote, went to the palace theater in Manchester to watch the bodyguard and a bunch of entitled P 
asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. Two synonymuses. <laughs> started singing over the lead during the final song. A riot broke out, the show was canceled, and the police were called. At Red Army 1878 posted, just been to watch the bodyguard at the palace and a mini riot erupted during the big ending. Show canceled, people being physically removed, and fights in the aisles. All because you can't sing along. Police at the scene. Utter madness. So I guess long story short, uh, the, the Brits over there don't know how to, to act. <laughs> or if so, they're trying to police audiences to the point to where the experience is ruined for everyone, performers included, because being in the moment is against the law all of a sudden. So, again, it's hard for me to know what side to take here. Sure. <laughs> my, uh, yeah. my question to you is uh, all all the, the rise in all of this bad behavior, how much of the COVID shutdowns and such do you think has impacted our ability to act right once we get out among people? That's a good point. My comeback to that, though, is acting right, quote unquote, might be something that we should divest from considering all the time we spent indoors. We spent pre-COVID times in the concert halls sitting there quietly with our hands in our lap and all of that stuff. Now that we're actually back outside, why not challenge those sorts of uh, status quo hmm. and the way that we're supposed to uh, act in a, in a concert hall? It's hard. The, the reason why I kind of feel like I have to straddle the fence here is because I think about the respectability that is superimposed on orchestral audiences and how difficult mm -hmm. it's going to be over the generations to break people out of that. So on one end, respect performers. We don't want to ruin the experience for everyone. And on the other hand, who cares about the tradition? Why not engage in the in the uh, in the performance in the way that you want, we've talked about here on Chulakui before. Yep. Back in Shakespeare's day, they were eating. Um, what do you call the mutton lamb leg? Chops. Mutton chops in the crowd and scream, screaming, and it was it was crazy. You know, mm -hmm. why why and and not why not revisit that, but why just try to police audiences so much, especially audiences who bought the ticket? So you have the butt in the seat, you have the income. Why? police them beyond that you yeah. know that that's that's the, the the sort of dual perspective i come to this with last fall we talked about this um i don't remember what opus number it was talking about uh clapping and not clapping like in the middle of the music mm -hmm. and all that sort of thing and we talked about are we are we going to bring in bleachers are we going to turn it into a baseball game now uh -huh. do we want to hear i want to hear music at some point my point is um People went there to hear this cast do it. Sure. If you want to sing it, there's probably a karaoke bar right down the street. <laughs> so go right ahead. You said bring your ass and down there. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying if you're to the point where you're overwhelming sure. the people that are, are supposed to be doing it for you, it, then it's, it's a different experience. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Igor Stravinsky would like a word. <laughs> sure <laughs> on sure. this riot business yeah, yeah all right well shout out to cody from over uh in the in the uk who put this put this yeah, on our cody, radar thank you. uh we'll we'll check back for for updates and and see what else y'all doing over there in england coin fights can't even go to a musical <laughs> because folks holler you know i told you the one time i've been to england we went to a sunday roast and they were in their fight yeah <laughs> <laughs> i mean full pledge like throwing fists and i'm like and they were wow. related <laughs> yeah anyway stay classy man shout out to all of y'all mind the gap uh, <laughs> and we're going to transition it to the second movement here with uh, a little of the uh, score from the film the 
bodyguard. So I didn't know this was an Alan Silvestri joint. Me neither. You know, that, that, that's cool. So a, a contemporary classical composer of note who wrote this tune called Security Measures for the mm. Bodyguard. So we're going to listen to a little bit of this to get us to our second movement. Do you remember what the tune was that you were singing over the band at the bar? I remember many of them. One of them was, I'll be your crying shoulder. I'll be. And you were in there. Give it up. Yeah. <laughs> I would not have been. People said they would not have been surprised to see me get up on stage and grab the mic. Mm, you were feeling yourself. I, was, I mm. live. I live. <laughs> All right. Well, we're here in the second movement where Scott and I are going to share a little bit of music that we have personally been spending some time with. How about you get us going? What you got for us? This sure. Week? In the spirit of trying to bring uh, orchestral music and instruments, let's not talk about bringing other styles of music to classical. Let's talk about bringing the classical element to other styles. Mm -hmm. And you know how hard it is to get me to sit and listen to vocal performances. You know, it's got like choruses. <laughs> and you and live stuff. here in Minnesota, so you're right. cussing right now. I'm telling you, and I'm not <laughs> going to be very popular, um, but that's okay. So uh, there, there's a, you know how you have various streams on YouTube? Uh, you know, the there's the lo-fi study makeout hip-hop sure. channel and all that so there's a there's a series called mahogany and it's actually done over in england and i ran across uh, a pop band called amber run that teamed up with london contemporary voices hmm. and they put together a acapella choral version of one of their hits i'm assuming and when i first heard it i thought that it was some contemporary band that you would hear on a on an alternative station hmm. And I started to think, what would happen if they put this recording right after a Bon Iver track going into a Lord Huron track? Because that whole sound texture was there. So they uh, they recorded this video in an old decrepit building. You know, it looks like stuff still hanging on, you know, falling off the walls. Sure. They just sort of swept up a little bit, got the lights going, hit record, and let it go. thing about this track is i went back and i listened to the album version of i found you know the their little pop radio version and i did not like it oh you like this better i like this better and i'm i'm gonna go and check out what london contemporary voices are doing what they're talking about so you have the choral aspect there but 
they're they're singing about something that you don't have to have read the poem. You don't have to have uh, uh, been alive during whatever <laughs> battle that they're singing about. It's a it's a contemporary issue, a modern issue with modern language that resonated with me. It's beautiful. It's a very resonant recording, mm. indeed. Yeah, I must like reverb <laughs> because that you know the those those recordings that are done in uh, uh, train stations sure. that you can find they just move me. They yep. really do move me. I, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna break down when a Daft Punk beat drops. You know when the drop hits. But on something like this, I might. Sure. In the shower <laughs> with snot bubbles. Well, shout out to uh, Amber, Amber Run, Run and the London Contemporary Voices. That's a great recording there. Well, uh, last week, uh, Brandy Younger, my favorite harpist, the person who should be your favorite harpist as well, came out with a, a, a new recording. It's called Brand New Life, a really incredible album that fuses together uh, R&B and soul and hip hop all with her very unique and masterful approach to the harp. Uh, there's a there's an interview, I'll put it in the uh, description for y'all to read, but I wanted to read uh, one of the things that Brandy says is that creating this album has been a long time dream. I really had a lot of living to do before being able to execute it genuinely. The finished product is truly representative of where I am now, and it is an honor to convey that through the compositions of one of my heroes. The heroes that uh, she's talking about, of course, is Dorothy Ashby, who was a, a trailblazing harpist in uh in in her own right you mm -hmm. know so always more history for us to revisit and and learn about um it reminds me of what we were talking about earlier when it comes to improvisation that lived experience mm -hmm. being a necessary ingredient in and what you're putting forward well brandy says the same thing here and it's uh, uh an album that you know as I said, it's really incredible. She's been a musician who I have fangirled for many, many years now. Right. I had the uh, pleasure of performing with Brandy, I think back in 2013, sometime in, in New York. But my favorite uh, track right now, anyway, from the album is one called Moving Target. You get plenty of that harp, but you also get plenty of that soul and that just spirit that really pushes this sort of music in a new direction, in a more contemporary direction and in a direction that's sure to get audiences well beyond the traditional classical audience. Radio hat again. Is this also a Saturday evening sort of track, or or are there other times of the? Because for you know for folks listening who haven't worked in radio, when we're talking about different time slots mm -hmm. in radio, we're really talking about different audiences and mm -hmm. people who are engaging this music for different reasons. So I can definitely see the Friday evening, Saturday evening vibe that this music 
offers when if, if we're going to try to you know uh, incorporate this into classical radio what are some of these other day parts or other audiences that you think could benefit from hearing this maybe 8 a.m on a Monday morning is a great time for some brandy younger I was just thinking uh 4 30 Tuesday afternoon mm-hmm. you're on the way home and you need something that is going to keep you keep you up but not rattled and somebody been getting on your nerves all day having a little bit of something (laughs) you know when you get in the car (laughs) but also if we're going to follow the conventions that a lot of radio stations follow they've got their traditional programming throughout the week and then on uh, saturday and sunday during the day they let their hair down Mm -hmm. so maybe a saturday at two or sunday at 11 basically uh you you know in in radio you're trying to match what people are doing when they might be tuning in. So yeah. that's that's the primary motivation that I'm using. Yeah, absolutely. So shout out to Brandy Younger. I hope you will go uh, check out that album. Go support it. Brilliant stuff happening in the world of classical music. That recording that you brought in with her uh, Lift Every Voice, and then she went into oh, yeah. some variation. Yeah. I've passed that on to several people, and that always gets really good reviews. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a really great release. Fire. Yeah. All right, well, we're going to go ahead and uh, get ourselves into the third movement here. When I say... Before we get into it, Scott, when I say the phrase lucha libre, does that mean anything to you? Is that something for you? Meaning, do I know the person or does the name inspire something? Or, or any, well, first time I heard lucha libre, nothing came to mind. That phrase meant nothing to me. So, oh, yeah. no, I just think free, libre is free. Oh, okay, okay. Well, apparently lucha libre speaks to a style of wrestling that I wasn't <laughs> okay. I wasn't so familiar with. Oh, is, that Latin, the, is that the masks? Yeah, with, with I the was masks so far and off. the and the kayfabe. Okay. Again, I had no idea of the tradition, but uh, mm. our, our friend Juan Pablo Contreras uh has recently uh written and uh several times now uh, gotten a piece performed called Lucha Libre that melds the Mexican tradition of masked wrestling with Mexican aesthetics of music with what he does as a composer. I'm listening. There was a uh, a Southern California performance where folks who had never been to an orchestra concert before showed up uh, with masks on and that <laughs> sort of thing. Uh, when it was performed down in Mexico, I believe Guadalajara, uh, musicians on stage wore the mask. So, you know, wow. <laughs> so uh, Juan Pablo Contreras returns to Triloquy to uh, talk a little bit about this piece of music, his trajectory since the last time he was featured uh, on Triloquy. That was uh, back before everything of 2020. So mm. we uh, begin our conversation there. And he's speaks also to the importance that he feels as a Mexican composer to shine a light on Mexican culture and to make sure that the uh, communities that he aligns himself with have an opportunity to engage what he does for a living. I think it's a a really excellent uh, piece of music. Uh, We're going to sample a little little bit of it here in a second. But, you know, he's also one of my favorite composers who's living today because he really puts forward that culture piece. It's not about just success in the classical music field in itself. It's about success tied with really bringing in the communities, really bringing in the culture, and making sure that everyone feels seen and learns and uh, engages in a contemporary way. Love all the work he's doing and hope y'all enjoy our conversation. We're going to get into uh, my conversation with Juan Pablo with uh, an excerpt from Lucha Libre. Hope y'all enjoy this. And I'll see y'all on the other side.
Mexico, we're still quite a bit behind and really championing the you know classical composers, meaning Beethoven and Mozart, a bit too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and especially for young composers, it's really difficult to just ha- you know try out your orchestral writing chops. So that has been in the center of my mission. Something else that I did in 2020 and into 2021 was I started kind of like an or- online orchestration school in Spanish for Latino composers that don't have access to orchestration classes, which is a huge thing that you do have here in the States. And it was amazing. The community grew to like 120 students and I did like four different uh, courses and we we just studied orchestration. And that was a great way to stay connected and to also realize that there's a huge population of young composers that want to learn this material and that are not having access to it and also having access to what I think here in the States and especially the American Composers Orchestra does so well is allowing composers to make mistakes and learn from those mistakes and actually experiment and not have the pressure of delivering a flawless score to an orchestra without ever asking questions. So I think both go hand in hand. It's like teaching how to do the thing and then also trying to create the platform so that it actually happens. So I wonder how teaching and and really being this mentor to so many people impacts your own creations. I know that we always talk about the best way to to learn is to teach. Have have you found that to be the case since you've been doing all of this work? Yes, absolutely. And I think, uh, and we'll talk more about this, but I think representation is really important. And sometimes just having one person that looks like you or that has a similar background make it, whatever that means that changes your career completely. And for me, it was one of the first ones was Daniel Catan, who was a, an opera composer, like probably one of the only Mexican opera composers who I met when I moved first moved to LA. Uh, he taught in a community college right across CalArts where I was doing my undergrad. And I met him and I couldn't believe like he was Mexican, he was living in the US and he was writing like music for the concert hall. And that changed my my path completely as a composer initially i wanted to write film music and i once i saw like oh actually you can be mexican and make it as a you mm-hmm. know orchestral composer that completely changed and he was a very important mentor who then connected me to other key people that allowed me to keep going but um yeah i think just and having that um approachability you know i think that that is also very important as classical musicians i think we could improve on that. It's like, I always say like, why not after a concert, why can't I go talk to the conductor, like meet some of the musicians? Like they leave through another door and it's like, we're segregated and we cannot like really cross that uh, barrier, no? which is the stage. And I think I, I really love orchestras that do allow that kind of community where people know who plays in the orchestra, they support them and, and um uh, that's something else that I'm trying to do more. And I mean, social media is a great way to do that, but then also just being available to um, help others, you know, in, in the type of help that I needed when I was starting. 
Yeah, yeah, if I, yeah, social media is important, but since 2020, I certainly don't take for granted in-person interaction and, and conversation. I treasure that more than yes. I ever have, you know, since having to stay at home, you know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> while, while we're singing uh, your praises, I want to congratulate you on receiving the Vilcek Prize. I wonder uh, if you, you could talk about what uh, your plans are now that you've received this this grand honor. That was amazing. Um, I'm still over the moon and, and super honored that I was one of the winners. Uh, I did. I applied for it, so I knew. And, and it, it's a it's a prize for uh, immigrant scientists and artists. And each year they kind of rotate the artist category. And it had been eight years since music had come up. So there and there's only been a couple of winners. I mean, from celebrity, there's like two prizes: the celebrity prize, which has you know Yo-Yo Ma has won. Osvaldo Golihov, the Argentinian oh, yeah. composer, who's very good. Uh, and then there's a category where you can actually apply for the, the award, which is the one that I was lucky to receive. Um, but it was just so meaningful, especially because it also came in a, a time in my life where I had just become an American citizen. So I, I also felt like, okay, finally, after 15 years, which is, that's kind of how long it took me to become American. I felt like, okay, this is my home now. And, and I, I want to, you know, have my art also represent that. And, th and then winning an award that actually kind of celebrates the fact that I write uh, Mexican sounding music, that also was huge for me because it's not like uh, they want or the foundation is championing people who become American after immigrating here, but it's actually they're celebrating people who still value and uh, celebrate their roots. So that, that I think that especially was super special because I've received a lot of pushback, especially I went through the American kind of education system of like nine years of school, like undergraduate, graduate and doctorate de degrees. Mm -hmm. And which meant that I worked with a lot of teachers and a lot of them kind of pushed back on my Mexican sound and were like, are you sure you want to be typecast? Like this is, you're going to become the Mexican composer. Are you sure you want that? And I was, I was like, I'm sure. Yeah, that, that's what I want to hear. And I, I think we should be encouraged more to write the music that we love and that we want to hear. And, and for me, this was like a, a really cool, um, you know, acknowledgement and recognition of like that I was on the right path in, in like continuing and being stubborn on this is the kind of music that I want to write. This is the kind of message that I want to convey. Mm -hmm. uh, so for all of those reasons, it was even more special that, than just any kind of award, but like an award that actually recognizes that, which is the, the essence of my music and what I do with everything was very, very special. Yeah, let's talk about that word America or American for a second. You know, you, you've mentioned the American Composers Orchestra, and it's an mm -hmm. organization that really does affirm the artistry of people who live throughout the Americas, not just yes. uh, the United States. I also understand that there's an orchestra, I believe in Mexico, that's the Orchestra of the Americas or, or something along yes. those lines. <laughs> Unfortunately, you know, in the way that we all tend to speak, when we say that word, we are talking about the United States. But I wonder what is uh, your engagement of that idea as a composer? The fact that Mexican traditions are American as far as, you know, North American next to the idea that, you know, people will hear that word and automatically think of stars and stripes and red, white and blue, mm -hmm. and those things. Ah, uh, that's a good one. 
Um, and then especially thinking, you know, yes, definitely I, I have struggled with uh, living with that of like American or yeah, America being the United States and not just the whole continent, which is like North America, South America, and so, you know, there's so many countries in between. And, and uh, I think that is important to make that distinction. And also, uh, I also have never felt comfortable with the idea that sometimes certain types of Americans get the, like the hyphenation, like Mexican Americans or African Americans. But then there's other types of Americans that don't get like, I don't know, European American or Italian American, where I think the States, you know, the beauty of this country is that it really is a melting pot of a lot of cultures. And I'm sure most people have, you know, one or two generations behind them, someone who was an immigrant and who came here, um, to start a new life and uh, i'm always curious about that like why some people do get that hyphenation and why we're trying to make these distinctions so so i like that i like thinking about that and i think yeah awareness of of the fact that it's a continent and not, not just a country is important um but also it also encourages people to think about the whole continent as one one thing and not and especially here in the states there shouldn't be that amount of distinction between what are you what is your hyphen i don't know yeah what do you think i don't know i think i know I, 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 I completely uh, agree with you what it makes me think about though is the idea that um what is american as far as all of the americas yeah you know, we have the opportunity to really expand that for audiences as musicians you know through <laughs> our programming through what we create you uh, yeah. a piece in your um in your catalog uh, mariachi lan i'm sure it's received very different in las vegas than it may in mexico city or or maybe it's engaged in the same way have you experienced a a different reaction to your american music depending on where in the americas you are yes definitely especially from performers i think i also feel they they relate to the music differently though my goal has always been like to try to notate the music to write it down in a way where even if you know nothing about mexican culture you'll be able to perform it and and make it sound in my case mexican no so uh, but it is interesting when some performers know, let's say, mariachi music, and they can kind of inhabit that sound world and, and you know, add more vibrato or, you know, make it sound a little bit more traditional, whereas sometimes some orchestras that are more, um, more from the States, you know, make it more elegant, which I don't mind. I think it's okay. I think one thing that I do struggle with is sometimes I... I include indications of like play the solo in a more kind of raw rustic kind of way and a lot of classical musicians don't like to sound ugly they're like no no i've played my whole life to get a perfect tone i refuse to make it sound but i that i tried to convince them like no it's part of the the mission of this piece is to make it sound like how mariachi music is experienced in the streets of mexico um and in terms of the audience i i'm always surprised as to how people make connections with my music even though it's very mexican and sometimes very specific about like specific town in mexico Mm -hmm. it becomes very universal people come up to me and are like oh it made me think about uh i am from argentina and it made me think about growing up in argentina and i think that's that's what i love about you know being being a composer and writing music 
that I really care about is that it encourages other people to think about the things that they care about and not necessarily have a, uh, a reference point in terms of the type of folk music that I'm referring to, but actually think about their own folk music and what is dear to them. And that's the, I mean, I'm not taking credit. I think that's the power of music. It really is very universal. I'm fascinated by the idea that you have to convince a uh, a classically <laughs> trained violinist to you know really dig in. Or I, I wonder if you've experienced the the opposite. You know, I, I know that uh, stringed instruments are a part of you know a mariachi ensemble. Have you ever had to ask a mariachi violinist to clean it up a little bit or whatever yes. you choose to use? <laughs> that is a, that is a great point. And yes, and I think uh, especially in Mexico we have this. I don't know. The culture is like, if you're going to build a desk, the first thing you do as a Mexican is you throw out the instructions manual. Like you're, <laughs> you, you know, that that's the kind of approach. Like I'm a carpenter. I know how to do this. So what happens a lot with orchestras, you know, the composer, basically it's, it's what we do is a set of instructions. That's, that's it. No. And sometimes it is difficult to convince some orchestras to really follow the instructions and play what's on the page and not why, because it is, there is this culture of like, I'm going to actually improve this part. I'm going to, I'm going to add my own flavor, which, you know, there's a fine line. I, I am all for interpretation, but also, you know, we go through the, the trouble of really thinking about how to write out the music. There should also be, um, you know, some kind of respect of that. So I, there have been instances, instances where I, I would say like, oh, you know, that you took it a little bit too far. Like this still <laughs> is classical music. I, I think that's one of the things that I'm trying to do is the medium is the orchestra, but the genre, whatever you want to call it, is you know orchestra music and not um, taking a mariachi into the concert stage. It's like blending the two things together so that um, it can be in a program with any other kind of music without that kind of um, expertise in, in the original genre, if that makes sense. Yeah. When I'm trying to pitch uh, my work as someone who is really working to reframe our use of that word classical or the idea of classical music, I always talk about how an Indian raga is classical from that context, exactly. you, know, the, yes. you know, and go all around the world. I've even started to make the argument that uh, mariachi music is an example of the classical music of the Americas. Is, is yeah. that an argument that you would make? Is mariachi in itself even outside of an orchestra, classical music. Yes, I love that. And I think it should be more, uh, it should be taught more like at music schools. I think kind of like jazz, jazz is like kind of a standard genre that you you can go to school and, and study and focus on on jazz. I think, especially in Mexico, that it should be an option to really master whatever you know mariachi is. And, and I like that. I think it definitely is uh, the classical music of the country so yeah that word is pro it's is problematic because it, it implies classical as like mozart but also it's like orchestra but then mm. as you say like in indian music classical music is something very different and um yeah i like that you're making an effort to to actually <laughs> you know take care of these labels and and broaden them much more yeah, certainly making an effort anyway. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it, you know, we, in addition to talking about, you know, uh, classic music of Mexico, there are 
other classic traditions. You've recently written and uh, premiered a work inspired by Lucha Libre. Uh, the the yeah. listeners can't see, but you have, it looks like you have some masks yeah. in the background. <laughs> yeah. for, for folks who have never heard of what that is, how would you describe it? It's, it's Mexican wrestling, and you can think of it like American wrestling, but um, it's more like each of the the wrestlers is like a superhero. So they have their own mask, their secret identity. You never know their real names. Like they hide their identities until they die. So I've seen people like walking in Mexico City uh, with their luchador mask on so you, you don't recognize who they are. In, I once saw a guy with a three-piece suit having lunch with his mask on in like a very fancy restaurant. So it's it's more, I don't know, It's it has that mythological kind of aspect to it. Um, and it's something that you can go watch every weekend in Mexico City, but, and also in big cities in Mexico, they have Lucha Libre. Uh, and what's really fun about it is that there's, I mean, there's two teams. There's like the Rudos, which are bad guys, and Technicos, good guys. But in reality, people just go there to have fun. It's like, it's a spectacle. It's something, it's not technical. Actually, if you want to improve your ranking as a, as a luchador, as a fighter, it's based on popularity. So if people start to like you, your ranking goes up. So it's nothing to do uh, with like how many matches you win. So it's more of a party. It's more of a spectacle where people go and just root for no one. They just want to have a good time and they, they're screaming at you know, the, the ring and, and it's, it's kind of surreal how, how, how fun it is. And, and it's obviously very colorful, very Mexican in that sense. And it's something that I grew up with and I, I grew up going to some of these uh, matches when I was young. And then after being involved in classical music so many years, I had this idea or this connection that classical musicians are almost like superheroes because they're, they do something very technically challenging and then they need to do it in collaboration with a lot of people on stage so that the magic can happen. And in Lucha Libre, most of the moves and everything are choreographed. So it's all planned mm -hmm. out. So it also requires that kind of collaboration, even between opposing teams in order to put on the best show. So I thought about like, wow, wh why don't I write a piece where I can, there's usually six fighters in the match, like three versus three. So I, um, eventually created new identities, new masks that I have made here in, in San Diego uh, by a mask maker. And the idea is uh, I set up the orchestra in a way where the th three versus three would face each other. Each luchador has an instrument and it's like a soloist and they have a theme, a melody, and those melodies fight are introduced and then they fight each other one against one, two against two, and then eventually three against three. Well, and the idea, I mean, hopefully no idea. instruments being smashed on any <laughs> <laughs> No, no, nothing like that. But the idea is, we'll see. Eventually, when I when I recorded this piece in Mexico, the musicians did wear the masks themselves. When we premiered it in in LA, it was a bit more problematic. So we just had like a a pole with a, the like a mannequin head and the mask on. But the idea is that as an audience member, you can go there and, and see these masks on stage and see how um, the themes fight each other. And we even like introduced, again, coming back to this idea of like really bringing in the audience. I went on, on stage and introduced each, kind of told them a little bit about each character. We played the theme so that you could get to know the type of music that each character embodies. 
and then they played the Lucha Libre piece, which, which is a match. And you can, so they could have an easier time kind of identifying who was fighting against who and, and follow along a little bit better. I almost want to ask if you are a, a luchador, but maybe you wouldn't be allowed to tell me, even if you were. <laughs> <laughs> that would be awesome. That would be awesome. No, I have to be more fit. These guys are incredible, like incredible shape and and just the acrobatics they do, like the, how they jump on, on, on stay on the ring. And it's, it's kind of re- really amazing, like how, how talented they are. So it's more, and it's something more, yeah, very choreographed, very visually engaging and not, not violent at all. I think the American wrestling is a little bit more violent, even though there might be some acting involved, it's much more physical. There is just about like, the looks and then the luchadores come out and they say hi to people. It's it's more like an interaction with the audience, which again is something that I think classical musicians we we could continue to learn from. Yeah. You've you piqued my interest when you talk about the difference and how this could be performed in Mexico versus Los Angeles. Are we talking <laughs> about an issue of cultural appropriation or did musicians just not want to wear a mask? What what was happening? Yeah, I think they, they didn't want to wear the mask because <laughs> they're like the size is, is like a one size and and but they're the, the the fabric is amazing, it's very comfortable, but I think we need to work something out where we have different sizes or can do like a fitting so that it's easier for them to see the score, right? Because that's also an issue is like you're also playing quite challenging music and, and you need your whole vision. So I, I'm still working out that, that specific. Uh, I mean, I didn't mind that. I think it, it also looked cool to, to look at the, the poles with the, um, with the mask. Like it was visually very cool to see that. Um, and I should also mention that what was also amazing about the premiere is that there's a lot of Lucha Libre fans here in LA and they came to, to see this premiere, you know, people that had never been to a classical concert, a lot of them wearing a mask. Like oh, wow. Their, yeah. So it was like, you could see the audience with masks and that was, and I, I love that. I think um, it might seem a little bit out there, but I think sometimes that's what classical music needs a little bit more of a fun kind of aspect of, I mean, without making the music any less good, but just I don't know, even allowing players to have more fun. I think sometimes we're a bit too serious about what it is to be a classical musician. And and even for living composers, like I think there's a lot of very serious music being written. And I, for me, um, this was an opportunity to have more, something that was more of a celebration and that could allow everyone involved to have fun. I would never imagine that someone in the United States who goes to uh, an American wrestling match would be at all interested in going to an orchestra concert. Uh, you know, that there's sort of preconceived notions that we have around the differences between a wrestling audience and a classical audience. Is yeah. that same distance from your perspective present when you talk about a typical Lucha Libre audience member and an orchestral concert member is that distance as far removed as people may think i think so but i think the fact that i created this piece really intrigued some very like um you know lucha libre fans to be like hey i want to go to that i want to i want to see how that is going to work or how is this composer making that happen and i think that's what happened here in in la that a lot of people 
have never been to a concert before, but they were huge Lucha Libre fans and they were very proud to see something Lucha Libre related in classical music or in something in, in LA. So I, there was a, yeah, a lot of people that I got to meet and, and some of them who actually knew luchadors, like, you know, and, and that, that, that is something that I, that I'm proud of, like, you know, bringing those two things that seem like, as you say, impossibly <laughs> irrelevant, you know, make it kind of happen. So how would you sell this idea to a symphony, let's say in Vermont or, or somewhere in, in Canada, far removed from having a large population that understands what this culture is? Why, why is it important to put culture even outside of music into a music space? Yeah. Oh, good question. I think because even though the like the, the actual Lucha Libre you know, spectacle is something very flashy. And, you know, you look at these masks, they're very colorful. Each character has a unique identity and has kind of a, a message to convey, you know, like there's a character uh, called La Calva, who like death represents death, but from the very Mexican kind of perspective, that's very playful. Uh, so my my goal is, you know, as I introduce each of these characters and kind of give you an, uh, a glimpse of their essence as, you know, luchadores, that you as an audience member start to think about, hmm, what mask would I put on? Like, who, who do I identify with most? Who's my inner superhero? Like, what, what is my identity? Like, what, what are some of the things that I value and would maybe, you know, create or, or champion if I were to design a Lucha Libre mask? And I think those more kind of universal questions, again, bringing to the, to the fore this idea of identity it's in a, in a very kind of fun and unexpected way, but at the end of the day, it's, uh, it's something that I think we all, you know, those, the big questions like who are we and where are we going, I think are addressed here. It's also a, a battle between good and evil. Mm. You know, the, there's a good team, a bad team, and, you know, thinking about that and, and also encouraging the audience to uh, kind of the challenges, you have to identify who won. So what, whatever theme you hear most or near the end, so, so it also kind of really makes people also, also even to, it's almost like a Peter and the Wolf kind of thing where you are really paying attention to some of these instruments as soloists. There's a, mm -hmm. one of the characters is a timpani, the timpanist, which is not usually someone who plays a solo or the piano. So you're, it also encourages you to, to look at, at the orchestra in a new light and actually pay attention to the geography and the design of where are people sitting, who's going to help what character make the music come to life. And so there's a lot of things that I think are, are attractive. And it's also an opportunity. This piece was commissioned by the LA Chamber Orchestra in, as part of their, it's called the Sound Investment Program, which is like a year-long residency with them. And it was honestly, I think, the, the best experience I've had as a composer because I was able to in a series of salon events, uh, share my creative process, which is something very rare for a composer. It's usually just turn in the final product, go to the premiere, go back home and don't have that interaction. So I was able to interact a lot with their audience and explain all of these different characters and get to know about them in a deeper level and, and connect with an audience. Uh, and we actually ended up, you know, to, to the people who came to these events and actually supported the piece, we gave them masks. So we also had like 50 people with 
that already knew what was going to happen and were in into what, what the premiere was about wearing masks and that to me is yeah very valuable uh, to also bring in an audience member to the point of having them come to a premiere almost feeling like they wrote the piece so mm -hmm. making you know new music more of a communal experience was also very valuable i'm thinking about the placement of a piece like this on a concert you know one of the jokes that i always make is that if i go see an orchestra concert and they you know have created something that uh, has r&b or, or hip-hop i'm gonna go for that but maybe I'll leave at the intermission if the closer is a Beethoven symphony. I wonder what um, your engagement with that conversation has been about as generally, you know, you create more music that speaks directly to Mexican culture. Is it appropriate or do you see it as useful to have a piece like this on the same program as a Beethoven symphony or a Rachmaninoff concerto or something like that? Yes, because I think it almost becomes, it's like, um, it's a technical term, sinfonia concertante, where you have, it's like a symphonic piece with many soloists. It, it's kind of that. It's like a concerto for six soloists plus orchestra. So I think it, it can be, you know, sold as a, as a very classical piece, mm. but at the same time, it also has that component of being something, uh, as you were saying, relevant, something, you know, uh, that's that you can also see as a spectacle in Mexico today. Um, and I'm also kind of like you, I, I <laughs> usually for me, for me, but I'm going to tell you, I think it's not that I don't want to hear the Beethoven symphony. Maybe I don't, but I also, it's that I think classical music concerts are too long. I think, I think even for us that are, you know, we're trained as classical musicians. For me, I can really pay attention maybe an hour and yeah. then, then it's too much music. So, and, and I think, I, I I usually at the intermission, I'm so happy with what I heard and I'm like I, I was able to digest everything and I'm ready to to leave honestly. I like I think if you stay for a second half, which you should if you go to an orchestra concert, but it's just too much music and I don't think it helps a lot you know the, the whole situation if if I think if less music was programmed, it would also allow for more rehearsal which some, you know, orchestral musicians are always, you know, and, and you know, everyone is complaining, it's not enough rehearsal. We're, we're putting together two hours of music in three meetings or something rehearsals. So, I mean, uh, we just got to this idea, but I think making the program slightly shorter with maybe more interaction with the audience, like explaining what's going to happen. Um, that could be another, another perk about this piece is that it really encourages me, the composer or the conductor to go up and explain, this is what's going to happen. Pay attention to this. These are these instruments. Um, it really brings in the audience. It's not something that it can work as a piece that is just like a standalone uh, orchestral piece, but it also encourages more dialogue between audience and, and orchestra, which I think is very precious. Yep, I'm with you. One hour max. Let's just make One hour. Cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And honestly, I mean, Kind of joking about it but beethoven no i like it's maybe a little bit less beethoven i remember 2020 was the the big anniversary 250 years of beethoven and all orchestras were gonna do beethoven programs but now we're 2023 and i'm still seeing like i've yeah. been to a, a bunch of concerts where beethoven nine beethoven nine there it's great but there's so much good music out there that i that, that we also i don't know we we need to help audiences 
get to know more music. I think, you know, I, in my opinion, one of the reasons why Beethoven is so popular is because they've played it so much, like orchestra have played it so much that audiences just say like, oh, this is the good stuff because this is the stuff that I'm always getting. So why not give them other stuff? And I'm sure they're going to love it just as much. So I'm with you there. I, I think when a lot of people think about um, Mexican culture as it relates to Mexican people, especially in the United States, there's this idea that everyone who is Mexican was born in Mexico or, or, or came from Mexico when in reality, you know, you have third generation, maybe even fourth generation Mexican people who are fully from the United States. Yes. I wonder if you've thought about the impact of your music, you know, your music that speaks to Mexican culture for the sake of Mexican Americans. There we go with the yes. high nations, but for, for, for uh -huh. the sake of this conversation, Mexican Americans who don't have that firsthand experience with some of those Mexican cultures. It, it seems like your music is a not only a means of uh, helping everyone learn more about this culture, but specifically people who have uh, generational connections to the culture who may have never even been to Mexico. That's an excellent point. And my experience has been, uh, especially living in, in LA, I spent, I spent six years in New York in between uh, LA, New York, LA. And living in LA, I've met so many um, Mexican-Americans that are sometimes even more proud about being Mexican or of Mexican heritage than Mexicans. And that, wow. that has been really incredible, like how much they treasure their traditions and how much they want to support, you know, cultural things that have to do with Mexico. So that for me has been very inspiring to look at like these Mexican-Americans that are doing amazing things in the States and, and having such a positive impact. Um, and now, uh, definitely as a Mexican-American now, uh, one of my most recent pieces, which I wrote for the uh, New Music USA Amplifying Voices program, which, since this was like my first really big orchestral co-commission with six American orchestras uh, joining forces to premiere this piece, I wrote a piece called Mexicano, kind of like a, a play on words on Mexican and Chicano, which is like mm. the Mexican-American. And it's about my journey to become that, my new identity. But it celebrates Mexican-Americans. And what I did is I, I combined Mexican-American music, like the music of Selena, um, or like rock and roll, like Richie Valens, which one was one of the first rock and rollers that was playing Mexican tunes with rock and roll, um, Tex-Mex music. Like there's a lot of great genres that have come about because of this mixture of, of cultures. And it's premiered with four orchestras thus far. And the, the, the audience reception has been amazing. You know, people coming up and, and saying like, like, as you mentioned, like I'm a third generation, but I always remember like going to my grandfather's house and, and listening to this music and it really still speaks to me. Um, so I don't know if it's a, uh, responsibility, but it's, it is a privilege for me to be able to, you know, kind of take all of this music that has all is, you know, has a has a very meaningful place in my life, and place it in the concert hall, also to invite people from all places to feel more comfortable going to a concert. I think that's all. That's still kind of an issue of like, we think of classical music fans as a specific type of person. Mm -hmm. And I think 
when they when this music is part of the programming and it it really encourages people to go and say like oh maybe i can go with they're talking about something that has to do with my culture let me go listen to this so that that also has become um very special this connection that i'm i'm now building thanks to um my new identity i think as mexican american yeah so how can people learn more about everything you're doing um i mean follow following me in, in all of the social media goodies i i'm always as uh jp composer and especially instagram facebook um i've been releasing quite a bit of music now on both like spotify and uh on youtube as i was saying i'm i'm i recorded my second orchestral album with universal music the first one uh was maria chitlan that was nominated to a latin grammy uh what's cool about the second one it, it has the piece lucha libre and it's also my conducting debut on the album uh and you i think now you can find seven tracks from that album uh, available online and that will be releasing more this year and again with this with this perk of each of the tracks has an orchestral video which is like beautifully shot with like 15 cameras on stage and um because i think it it's very important for me to also champion the the musicians in an orchestra i think sometimes it's too much about the conductor and like who's on who's leading the orchestra but honestly that you know the real heroes here are, are the players like the music is very sometimes challenging to play and also to play together so for me that every opportunity that I, that I can have to to even like in this lucha lira piece it champions or it, it it's not about like bringing a soloist from outside that's going to play in front of an orchestra it's like let's celebrate six musicians that are already they sit at their usual seating places in the orchestra and they're going to have a solo and they're going to have this this collaboration and communication yeah that's a good um, that's a great point yeah yeah i think i think uh i i think it's like when you're a real fan of a band you know who plays bass you know who plays drums you know you know everything about uh, you know who's making the music happen i wish we we had that kind of um approach to orchestral players especially in, in your local orchestra you know getting to know um the musicians and, and who they are i think it just makes for a better experience for everyone uh, again i go to a lot of concerts just because i am a musician as well um and i i always really value when an orchestra not only says like this is your orchestra but they really show it and they really make an effort to like here's a meet and greet get to know the musicians or or have one of the musicians introduce a piece, you know, take the, take the microphone and say why it's meaningful to them. Um, that kind of thing, I think, is is very cool. That's brilliant. Well, my my last question for you. So it, you've you've definitely made over the course of your career so far the point that orchestral music can open people's eyes to culture. I wonder what your thoughts are on continuing that work, maybe even in Mexico, beyond Mexican culture. Do you see uh, a Mexican orchestra as a means for Mexican audiences to learn about the Black experience or Jewish culture or what's going on in, in China? I wonder how you in, engage the next step of the process, again, the orchestra as a window to the world in that way. Definitely. I think that's that's a fantastic point it's it's not just i mean i think by maybe celebrating once 
owns culture and making that important, you're at the same time already celebrating other cultures. You're or you're celebrating the fact that it's okay to you know to to bring in your own heritage and 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 blend that into your own sound or to program music that does that. I think um, I, I personally really really enjoy doing that. And so for some people, it's uh, you know it's their first uh, approach to that culture. You know, sometimes you know, in my case, I can speak about my experience, but sometimes people listen to my music and they've they don't even they've never heard about mariachi and they don't know what it is. And I think by you know writing a piece that really celebrates mariachi in a positive way or celebrates Mexico in a positive way can really change your mindset as a listener, as a human being. Uh, about how we, you know, think about a country, you know, or, mm. or a, a culture, you know, if you, if we hear, um, yeah, African-American music really blended nicely with orchestra music can be like really moved and overwhelmed in, in a positive way as to like, wow, I, I should really, you know, you know, pay more attention or be more open to meeting people from this background because this is really gorgeous, you know? So I think it's, I mean, it's a huge opportunity that we, you know, we have as composers, orchestras, performers to, as you say, like become, become a wi window and to be kind of like ambassadors about, you know, the positive things that we can uh, share. And at the same time, through programming, you can also communicate that we're all the same. Like it's, there's, you know, we're all one people and it's not, you know, these, these differences or to put it differently, we can highlight the similarities, you know, from you know, from our cultures and our, our backgrounds, and and I think I think we have a great stage to do it, you know. Like orchestra music is a is a huge medium with a lot of people involved. There's a lot of players on stage and a lot of people behind putting an orchestra concert together. So I think um, I I love it and I and I, I I like to see it and I'd like to see more of that. Excerpt there from Lucha Libre by Juan Pablo Contreras, a really exciting piece of music, a work that speaks to a very specific culture that, mm, <laughs> that, that can definitely bring in new audiences. In the uh, performance I'm going to put in the description, you even have performers wearing the, the masks. <laughs> I'm here for it's, it. It's, it's really phenomenal. But before we uh, jump into the fourth movement, I want to ask you, you know, again, Juan Pablo is a, a, a really favorite composer of mine for the way that he really uh, loops in culture in, mm. into the music. It's not just a sound. It's not just sounds we're hearing, but it's experiences that we're hearing as well. Do you feel like as a music presenter, it's significant or maybe even easier for you to put forward music 
that can do that. I don't have to be Mexican to really appreciate something that orchestrally sounds Mexican because I have proximity to that culture. I, I live in the 21st century where we have all heard something musically Mexican, and to hear that realized through the you know or- orchestral medium is it just from me from my perspective it just makes it more relevant you know when we talk about um bluegrass inspired orchestral music or even music like uh we were listening to uh brandy younger mm-hmm. earlier it just seems like culture is a very uh important thing when it comes to engaging audiences and something that we don't necessarily get by listening to Beethoven or even folks from the 20th century like Stravinsky and Shostakovich. There's history that is relevant, but aesthetically, it seems like culture, at least culture that, you know, uh, that speaks to our experiences isn't always there. How, mm. how important do you think contemporary culture as realized through the classical medium is and will be to engage broader audiences, certainly newer audiences? Let's say that I was a composer and uh, I would have to, if I were a composer, I would not be focusing on that particular piece because I'm in it and it's all around me. That, that, piece, that particular now, piece of the, right. the dialogue. Now, for right. example, if I were going to Mexico, mm-hmm. then I might include you know some of that bluegrass or the blues or yeah roots or some, all that yeah right something from my interest but seeing as how i'm a white man in a predominantly white community mm-hmm. i would try to be bringing in i would try to bring in things that would be universal to that person like um uh my experiences in nature um the influence that steely dan has had in my life sure yeah or, the, stand. or you know maybe um maybe something theatrical like uh dionysus yeah i mean and you're Shakespeare. Talk, you're talking about predominantly white audiences in america i mean let's say you go back to omaha and write a ballet score like uh, uh the guy from daft punk did mm-hmm. maybe the audience would still be predominantly white but i imagine that it would still be a different predominantly white audience if those ingredients of roots and blues and the things that you were just talking about play a forward role in the composition and they know that that's what they're coming to hear i, w- I would imagine that would get a different audience so like if i had some roots influences the roots community would show up to see what i did i mean do you think the roots community are hanging out at the concert hall now <laughs> i don't <laughs> okay that's what that, that's what i'm saying that's my point so there's still mm. even you know because you know talking about diversity and all that stuff is important but i've i'm i think it's important to also consider the fact that there are again people who connect themselves with certain cultures that have not been engaged that we can engage through our uh composition and presentation of so-called classical music in the same way that juan pablo does that. Mm. I'm sure there are plenty of uh Mexican people in Mexico who go to the concert hall. That's just, you know, the the reality. Mm-hmm. I also imagine that a piece of music that highlights that bit of culture will bring in a broadened or different Mexican audience and that's really what we're trying to get to just to broaden this thing and to affirm more people's experiences through it, you know, decolonize it, mm. uh, so to speak. So Something that you would write would include the black experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm putting probably, 808s in my symphony. Probably yes. your, probably your your Buddhist practice. Yep. 
I know that you like wins and Stravinsky-esque sort of things, so... Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll probably just have to, you know, condense it down or, or just write a series of works. Right. You know? <laughs> I'd show up. I'd show up. I'd okay. buy a ticket. All right. All right. Well, uh, shout out and thanks again to Juan Pablo Contreras. And we're getting into the final movement here where we got to talk about some things that have been going on in the world. So people are using the phrase, the Tennessee three. Mm-hmm. So as I have just been Googling that phrase to try to keep up with the news and everything that's going along, I stumbled upon the fact that Johnny Cash's backing band was called the Tennessee three. Did, did you know that? I, that was I, a new I had, one. Yeah, I had no idea. So we're going to listen to a little Johnny Cash in the spirit of uh, the Tennessee three, that genre of American classical um, and, a, and a tune that I think works pretty well for what we're dealing with. This is a Johnny Cash work called I See Darkness, Johnny Cash and the Tennessee Three getting us into the final movement of this week's opus. Well, you're my friend. And can you see? Many times we've been out drinking. Many times we shared our thoughts But did you ever Ever notice The kind of thoughts I got Real quick before we jump into the subject matter Johnny Cash American classical or no? From, from your perspective, I'm, I'm not so versed in that. How important is Johnny Cash when, it, when, we're, when we're talking about his style of music, the, the, the genre, the culture that he, you know, was really bred from? He spawned an era. You know, the, the, the sound of the train mm. in, in the music was... Uh, and you talk about the Tennessee Three, you know, when, uh, when they first played I Walk the Line... Johnny turned around and said, why don't you take a solo real quick to his guitarist? His guitarist didn't write one. (laughs) So he had to be able to improvise in that moment, looping it back around to the improvisation factor based on, you know, so he took what he knew of the music that he had already written and improvised the solo. So, um, yes, American classical. Indeed. Rest rest in power to Johnny Cash. And we're here in the finale to address, to sort of engage what happened down in Tennessee. For the people like me who don't watch any news, again, who sleep under rocks, (laughs) who spend all of their time in their home studios doing other things, what happened down in Tennessee? The Covenant Christian School shooting happened and young people responded and showed up by the thousands in front of the courthouse. And uh, the two Justins, the two black men that were ousted from their seats, tried to speak to the issues that their constituents were concerned about. Their microphones were cut off. So, and I don't know how this courthouse is laid out. There's something called the well. And I mm-hmm. guess that must be like a place to speak. I'm not sure. sure. How. So anyway, they went to the well with a megaphone to speak. And um, they were uh, voted out of their seats. One of them has already been voted back in by Nashville City Council. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Right. Um, but the the white woman kept her job uh, of the three. The, the white woman kept her job. The two black men were, were ousted. So I didn't know that one of them 
has gotten his position back, at least yep. at, at the time of recording this. Mm -hmm. Does that for you change the situation or say, whew, like, do, do you wipe your brow from that or are we still dealing with something completely heinous and ugly? It's different now. I saw this coming. Um, they just put the, the, the two Justin's popularity just got put on blast. Oh, sure. People all around the country suddenly following them on, on social yeah, media. This is when to put out a mixtape. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. But uh, I really do feel like this is different. Um, I, I really feel like um, some members of the GOP aren't even hiding it anymore. Yeah. And, and it's going to hurt them. So I think it's going to hurt them. The racists are going to racist. That's just the fact of the matter, especially yeah. the ones who are uh, in, in public office. I think what's most frustrating to me, maybe we touched on this in the intro, but these gentlemen were ousted through a tried and true system through process. It's not like it was mob rule, tie them up and throw them out of the state capitol. Mm -hmm. There was process and procedure that made this possible. And it makes me so irritated and, and, and it, it makes me uh, lose hope for, I, 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 should, I, I even feel weird saying that, but it just creates a lot of dissonance in me when it comes to any sort of political engagement, even taking my black ass to go vote for any of these people, because it feels like I'm voting and supporting for a system that is built to do exactly this. Again, it was not some mob rule thing where they were just kicked out of the chamber. There was procedure that has been codified in the Tennessee state government, probably many states that allowed this to happen. Why would I want to support that? Why would I want to support a system that can do that? It sounds like that is the administrative version of a lynching, is it not? That's what I'm saying. Okay. All right. I follow. In my response, you know, because I felt like I couldn't say nothing over social media or, or whatever when this happened last week. So I, I found a quote by a man named Robert Heinlein. He was a, a, a science fiction writer, um, a white man to my eyes, may, may, maybe not. But, you know, he's quoted, you know, as, as saying something that I think is just so appropriate. The quote is, I am free no matter what rules surround me. If I find them tolerable, I tolerate them. If I find them too obnoxious, I break them. I am free because I know that I alone am morally responsible for everything I do. That resonates so hard with me because when I think about my drama at NPR, there was never a denial on my part that rules were being broken. But as the quote says here, I'm responsible to my own values and to my own morals. How can I just go along with something just because it's a rule? And I feel like that's what the Tennessee Three were, were facing. I'm sure they full well understood the risks that were that, that they were taken on by taking the bullhorn into the well and participating in protests and whatever they did. But that's really their morals. We're talking about human lives here and all of these mass shootings. And that's what they felt like they had to do. Not to mention the fact that there are so many other more heinous rules that have been broken sure. by members of that same body. And they never had to deal with any of this. I wonder what for you determines the line between I need to keep this rule and no, I can't adhere to this rule. I mean, is a is a rule just the end all be all? Does it apply you? to everybody equally? Yeah. Or or does or I guess really what I'm asking is at what point 
do you feel or would you feel empowered to break a rule for the sake of your values? Or have you ever dealt with a rule creating dissonance uh, with your values and, and what you think is right? Sure. In your work or outside of your work? Yeah, in both instances there have been, but um, I can't think of any situations where my opposition actually made any impact. Mm. There might have been a negotiation to where both parties got a little something of what they want, but mm -hmm. like Larry David said, a compromise is what you have when all parties involved are dissatisfied. And I think that's where we got to uh, in, in those instances. It's never been anything of this caliber of, of these, that these gentlemen these gentlemen were going through. So let's take this to the arts. We can engage this conversation and infuse this into what we're doing here, but it's so much bigger than that. Let's say you were the program manager at a classical music radio station anywhere, but especially down in Tennessee. How would you engage this? Would you engage this? You say I'm a program manager? Yeah, you're in charge. Oh, okay. Um, I am going to assume that I would have a staff in place that I trust their instincts. So I guess that's step one. And right. <laughs> and I would encourage them to speak what is in their mind and their mm. heart. If I if I go in there and I tell somebody, this is an out and I tell my host, this is an outrage, and you gotta go on there and you gotta let people know and et cetera, et cetera, it might not be the the most effective way for that host sure. to communicate it. So I would I would take the lead off of my talent to let them broadcast in a way that makes sense for them and speaks to the issues in a way that is, is true to themselves. So let me ask you this follow-up. Let's say one of your employees doesn't want to engage at all. What, what is your response to that host? Well, there's a conversation there about why they're not feeling engaged. Yeah. Well, what do you what do you think you, if you were the program director and somebody said I don't I I want to talk about nice things I don't want to talk about anything that's that, that's challenging in the news right now? Yeah, I, you know I I will admit I asked you that question without an answer in mind myself. What immediately comes to mind? Maybe I'm being hyperbolic. Maybe I'm not. There were a lot of Germans who were good people who were never Nazis who said absolutely nothing and who did absolutely nothing as Jewish people were being slaughtered. Mm -hmm. There were swaths of white people all across the North and even the South during the Civil War who aren't racist. They would never own slaves. I, I would never X, Y, and Z, but they aren't doing anything in opposition. Right. They aren't using their, their platforms. So maybe that would be my reaction to that person and maybe I would you know I would definitely find a way to engage that in a less accusatory way because I don't want to you know I, I want to be heard I, I don't want people to immediately jump to their emotions and to their reactions but that's really what I think about when I think about the person the institutions who don't want to be involved in the conversation there's no such thing as being a bystander you're either perpetuating a thing or you're fighting against that thing that's being perpetuated. Understood. But even that gentle way of saying that can make a presenter uh, anxious, yep. nervous, and, and ineffectual at that point. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to 
stick with my same answer and also add the theater component to it. There's a time when the director has no more say mm-hmm. in what happens. You have basically let's let's treat rehearsing a role like being trained into your job and being seasoned and getting your experience. At some point, you got to take your hands off and let them do. Yeah. And if uh, I, I can't force somebody to to speak out on an issue that they're not comfortable with, maybe I've got somebody else on staff that's going to counterbalance it. That's it, it, I, I see where you're going, what you're asking, but it's it's difficult to just uh, elocute like the two Justin as well as the two Justins do because they're brilliant. About, yeah, they both they're both going places, mm-hmm. and uh, I I really think that their their opposition have just have have given them a digital bullhorn and a digital spotlight, a digital stage that they're going to blow up. They're going to absolutely blow up. We'll see how things develop and what other news that happens because America is on fire right now, it, it seems. Uh, but one thing I did want to just note before we close today, we bring up semi-regularly, you know, two or three times a year, the famous sister soldier quote, where are all of the good white people? All mm-hmm. of these good white people that you're talking about, where are they when we need them? Okay, I'm not going to draw the race line when it comes to this issue, but what I am going to say is where are all of the good classical music institutions? Where are all of the so-called good uh, institutions of higher learning? And what are they saying? How are they responding to this? Today, it's two black people being ousted from their uh, elected positions in in state government. What will be the next thing? And what will be the next thing? You know, you're saying this is unprecedented. What will be the next unprecedented thing? And the thing after that? And the thing after that? How long can our institutions, classical music or otherwise, be silent and not be seen as complicit in this this whole thing? Uh, There are certain you know, reins that I'm held by in some of my work, including my radio. Well, my radio work is pre-recorded. If I was live, it'd be a different story. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I'm I'm grateful that we have Triloquy to speak to this and not only just to wag the finger, but to inspire everyone in the arts to figure out how you can engage these conversations. There's something to be said about this. There's some way for us to um, in- infuse ourselves into this because in 20, 30, 40, 50 years, I would hate for this era in history to be one in which classical institutions, so-called classical institutions were just silent. You know, I think about uh, something that, you know, came to mind uh, for me today. I was talking uh, with uh, someone. Let's talk about the civil rights era in the United States. We can automatically go to Leonard Bernstein as someone who you know, threw his hat into the ring and and did certain things. But can we really name an orchestra or a conservatory or a school of music that was really participating in it in the same way that we can front of mind talk about Ebenezer Baptist Church or mm. or, or talk about, you know, all of the, the figures that we always talk about, Rosa Parks, Ida B. Wells, you know, Martin Luther King, all, all of those folks. We cannot name just off the top of our heads just as a matter of conversation, those classical institutions that took part in that struggle. 
we have an opportunity now as an arts industry to change that part of our tradition. I want people to look back on this time and say, wow, even the orchestras were involved. Even the orchestras were pushing back. Mm. But for that to be a reality in the future, we have to do something about that today. And we really have to act on it. So that's what I got. Again, I could come on here and cuss everybody out. I could go down the list of representatives who voted them out and mm. personally give them a fuck you. Or, like I'm trying to do now, right. encourage people to, in whatever way you can, really participate in what's going on. You have spoken both on mic and a little, uh, off mic and a little bit on mic about your idea of getting past just doing this work in music and having a, a broader impact in your activism. Yeah. Does hearing stories like this edge you closer? How are, how are you impacted beyond just the music piece? As I said before, the battle that I have to internally fight is not wanting to just stop participating whatsoever. You know, maybe that's why my karma has not yet led me to winning the lottery, because if it was several million dollars in the bank, maybe I'd just be in Ghana and say, Scott, we, we got to record remote because I'm in Africa. <laughs> I, I, for the record, I would be the one up late. I would be considerate of your time and your schedule. How right. about that? Right. Very <laughs> well, good. Thank you, everyone. Really appreciate y'all. This is a, a rough time, but you know, dialogue can get us through. Dialogue that can give us a little bit of reprieve, a little bit of laughter can get us do can get us through. And that's what we try to do here. Thank you, everyone. Always appreciate your listenership. We'll see you next week.